You're listening to the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast with Joris Brion. Hey, this is Joris of the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast. And today I'm really excited and I must say honored as well to talk to Jason Goldberg. Uh, he's probably uh, the guest with the most impressive bio so far, and I'm going to read it to you. It's uh, it's pretty, uh, well, impressive and long. Uh, Jason, Retail Geek Goldberg, he's the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicist Communications. He's a fourth-generation retailer and launched his first e-commerce site for Blockbuster Entertainment back in the days in 1995. He's worked with over 100 clients on the Internet Top 500, and he's been responsible for billions of dollars in online revenues and his twitter feed um at retail geek check it out he's one of the most followed e-commerce subject matter experts on the web and he's also executive chairman of the board of directors of shop.org and the national retail federation digital advisory board he has served even as an expert witness in federal court on e-commerce and he's also a guest lecturer on retail and e-commerce at the Kellogg school of management for northwestern university he has his own Podcast as well uh, called the Jason and Scott Show, and he's been voted one of retail's top global influencers by event, and that's uh, even five consecutive years. Yeah, well, that's a as I said, a very impressive bio, and uh, so I'm sure uh, it's going to be a very interesting episode. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Uh, super happy to have you here. Uh, thanks very much, Joris. Joris, the uh, honor is entirely mine, uh, but I, I didn't realize you were going to read that bio that my mom apparently wrote for you. <laughs> she's a big fan, you can tell. Exactly. Uh, Thank God yeah. I have one. She's really, yeah, she's really proud of you. That uh, that tells. But it's it's impressive. And I, 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 was, I was reading through the bio before, and I was like, can I make it shorter? But no, that wouldn't do you justice. So I left it all, and it's uh, it's so impressive. But yeah, I already told told, told a bunch about about you in the, in the bio, of course. But you have your story. So how yeah, where did you come from in your career? How did you start in e-commerce? How did it all go? And how did you end up um, yeah doing what you do right now? Yeah, well, I suspect like most people, um, mostly by accident. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, I. I uh, my family had been in retail for a long time. Uh, uh, just out of college, I got a, a job uh, with a, a relatively on- unknown entrepreneurial business in the U.S. at the time that was called Blockbuster Entertainment. It, it ultimately became a, a very large enterprise. And of course, today it's a joke about uh, digital disruption. While I was there, this uh, thing called the Internet started to impact business. And so, you know, being the, the young, unimportant guy, they're like, uh, Jason, you, you've been on the World Wide Web. Uh, should, we, should we even have a website was literally the first question <laughs> that I was asked. And that was a non-obvious answer at the time, right? Because the the browser available back then was Spyglass. Like, you know, um, Netscape hadn't, hadn't even been launched or Mosaic. And so we went through those kinds of problems. And then, you know, early on, we actually sold some merchandise on the web. And I think we beat Amazon to the web, uh, you know, uh, back then. And then... Uh, that, of course, grew into a pretty big part of the business. We sold Blockbuster to a, a media company here in the U.S. called Viacom Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went to work uh, for some other retailers like Best Buy and Musicland that were struggling with a lot of these same same issues. So I was lucky enough to be involved in uh, the, the early e-commerce efforts of a, a lot of what ultimately became big enterprises. Yeah, and that's... Uh... That, that's quite uh, exceptional. I mean, there, there aren't that many people who have been basically at the start of e-commerce uh, already doing this. That's uh, yeah, that's awesome. And, yeah, and all the right, are successful and retired. I'm the only one still working. 
<laughs> so you must have done something wrong then. Exactly. <laughs> no, uh, anyway. So right now you are a chief commerce strategy officer for the Publicis Group. Um, first of all, for people who are not really familiar with Publicis Group, can you explain a bit um, who you are, what they do? Yeah, yeah. So they're, we're a big um, agency holding company. So so Publicis Group owns hundreds of agencies, uh, uh, many with famous names that you'd be familiar with, like uh, Leo Burnett and Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, all those those agencies provide various uh, marketing services, uh, media services, uh, and uh, digital services to to clients. So I, I sort of um, sit on top of the thought leadership team that that supports all of those agencies and and uh, help help uh, us build the the capabilities and expertise uh, that the agencies need to serve clients in the commerce space. Okay, so that, does that mean, so Chief Commerce Strategy Officer, does that mean that you basically th- think about edu- educating uh, the agencies uh, and, 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 and the strategies or how, how does a day sure. look like as a Chief Commerce Strategy Officer? I'm trying to wrap my head around it, actually. Me, me too. And if you do it before me, <laughs> let me know. Um, <laughs> I will. But, but in general, like a portion of the role is, is customer-facing. So a lot of it is helping to reinforce Pubis's thought leadership in the space and have clients think of us as a, a credible subject matter uh, expert in the space. So I go to a lot of conferences and speak. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the podcast and the Twitter feed and some of those, those other activities where I get to interact with, like, frankly, future prospective clients. But then as you sort of alluded to, a big part of my role is internal education. So, you know, working with an agency that may have a, a a lot of deep uh, usability expertise, but may not have a, a particular focus on commerce and educating them about, um, and I hesitate to use the word best practices because uh, that's a, a loaded word, but educating uh-huh. them about the kinds of things we would think about in usability specific to commerce and mobile commerce usability and things like that. Uh, so a lot of it's educating the agency. Uh, some of it is uh, strategic capabilities development, like, hey, there's this new thing called PWAs and we don't have a core competency in the group. Um, I think we should, you know, build a, a, an agency that that's excellent at, at building progressive web apps or maybe acquire an agency. So, you know, it's sort of one third customer facing thought leadership, one third internal education and uh, knowledge share and sort of one third uh, strategy and capabilities development. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I, I imagine you travel a lot as well. Then I do. I, I'm based in Chicago in the in the U.S., but uh, I, I like to say I'm here infrequently because I'm generally on the road every week. Yeah, isn't headquarters of Publicis is that isn't that in, in Paris? Yes, we have a we we have some excellent real estate. Uh, our headquarters are like right on the end of the Champs Elysees, overlooking the Arc de Triomphe. And uh, a little known fact: uh, the original founder of Publicis came to the U.S., saw a really interesting store retail concept in the 1950s and he brought it back to Paris and opened it on the Champs-Élysées. So there's a, a store that we've been operating since about 1953 uh, called Publicis Drugstore, like, you know, on, on one of the premier retail boulevards in the world. Um, and it actually gives us a living playground for interacting with customers and selling stuff. And uh, of course, uh, we, we support e-commerce for that store as well. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I, I knew the group. Uh, I knew they were French, but I didn't know that. And it's an interesting location, by the way. And uh, Champs-Élysées, that's uh, not too bad. So if you go there to the office, great views. I yeah, it means you can't stay at a cheap hotel when you visit the corporate headquarters, though. <laughs> no, it's a quite expensive uh, area there. <laughs> I know. But at the last day of the Tour de France, that's the best day uh, to be oh, there. Right. I, like, I, I don't tend to be there for that. But, but literally, our balcony overlooks, like, I mean, like, the news crews rent space on our balcony to film the Tour de France. Oh wow! Okay, I'm I'm a, I'm a big cycling nerd. We won't go into that, but uh, yeah. Anyway, jealous. I would I, I would definitely go there uh, nice. that day of the year. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's talk a bit more about e-commerce. So, what do you see like uh, as as the biggest challenge when it comes to uh, e-commerce conversions? Sort of an open question, like because there are a lot of challenges, and I think I feel like if you if you go survey a hundred clients. You'll find a you know you'll find some common themes, but you'll find a pretty broad standard deviation from that theme as well. But one that comes up an awful lot at the mobile is what I uh, at the moment is what I call the mobile gap, and uh-huh. that's this notion that um, obviously all our traffic on all our properties is shifting to predominantly mobile. For the majority of my retail clients, like well over fifty percent of all their traffic tends to be on mobile devices. But the the dirty little secret is the conversion rate on those mobile devices tends to be a lot worse than it uh, was on the desktop device. So if you, mm-hmm. you extrapolate that, that's not a very favorable theme for uh, trend for e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about how to sort of remediate that, that mobile gap on behalf of clients that are, you know, experiencing that, that shift in audience. Okay. And any, yeah, any thoughts you can share on, on how to do that? Yeah, uh, find find better customers is the easiest way, but I haven't. <laughs> uh, turns out that one's actually not so easy. But yeah, like there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. Some some are usability related, some are not. Like there's you know a lot of different missions people perform on their mobile device that they historically didn't perform on the desktop device, and so mm-hmm. we actually have incremental visits to the site where the intent was probably not to consummate a purchase. Like you're, right. you're going to see a lot more store locator traffic on your mobile device than you are on desktop. You're going to see a lot more inventory checks for a brick and mortar store on a mobile device. And so, you know, in the, the simple minded uh, conversion, you know, site-wide average conversion rate, like all those detrimentally affect conversion rate, even though, you know, they, they probably didn't, uh, they, 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 very may, they may very well have accomplished their mission. Um, so there's some of that sort of attribution problems that that compound the problem, but there mm-hmm. is a lot of fundamental usability um, friction in mobile devices. Like obviously we have smaller real estate uh, checking out in e-commerce, like it uh, in its essence is a form and mistakes that we maybe got away with on desktop around uh, best practices in form are high uh, in forms are highly exacerbated on mobile. And so it's mm-hmm. super important to get all the, sort of block and tackling form usability stuff right. And, you know, I like to joke, one of the problems with mobile is it, it takes three hands to check out. You have one to hold the phone, <laughs> one to hold the credit card, and one to, to tap the, the screen. And most of us don't, don't have three hands. So there's an affordance problem. Obviously, if you have a, a shopper using a digital wallet, like that's, that's much lower friction. And sure enough, when you go to countries where digital wallets are very prevalent, like China or you go to sites where you know uh, the the user base is heavily embracing the digital wallet, like Amazon. You you tend to see much higher conversion rate and much lower mobile gap. So those those sorts of things all all come into play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, yeah, 
I totally agree also on, on, on what you say, like the, um, the, the intent of, of uh, people on, uh, on mobile. I mean, we, we can dream and, and, and hope to get the mobile conversion rate at the same level of desktop, but it's probably never going to happen because uh, a lot of people just go to the mobile site with a different intent, as you said, to find a, to find a store, for instance. So, um, but in, 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 in your experience, so let's say you have a desktop conversion rate of 2%. What could you expect for a mobile conversion rate? Yeah, well, so industry averages, like across all of the sites I work with, the mobile conversion rate tends to be about a third of desktop. So yeah. like that 2% desktop site might literally be a 0.6 conversion rate for mobile. And mm. you know, it tends to fluctuate between that sort of 0.6 and 1% for a, a site that has a, a 2% desktop conversion rate. So that's that's quite acute. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and tablet, somewhere in between then? Yeah, right middle, or? I'll be honest, and maybe this is my bad attitude. Uh, tablet is somewhere in between. Um, the traffic trends on tablet tend to be less statistically meaningful for, for mm-hmm. many of my, my clients. Um, and increasingly, the tablet industry is doing us the favor of morphing the tablet into a desktop. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the latest version of the, the iPad OS, um, you know, which is now a forked OS at Apple, like the, it's a desktop browser instead of a mobile browser. And so you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're on a, an adaptive or a responsive site, you're going to, you're now getting the desktop version of the, the site on that device. And of course the, you know, Microsoft has actually gotten quite good traction with their surface products. And, and so, you know, the, the tablet is ending up to uh, behave and uh, look uh, much more similar to the, to the desktop. Like that's not absolutely true. And so, you know, like, on your list of initiatives to solve, like, you know, tablet is a unique segment, but I'll be honest, there's so many higher order problems to solve that, you know, it usually doesn't make a lot of sense to get to that problem. Yeah, yeah. and then just focus on mobile and desktop first and, uh, and and tablet follows automatically almost, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, if, if, if you would like optimize a mobile version of a site, what areas would you look for um, first? Um, what's usually the lowest hanging fruit? Yeah, well, so I, uh, I have an old mentor uh, that said, uh, generally the best way to make more money is to take it from the people that are trying to give it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, that means that usually where I would start uh, if I'm looking for low hanging fruit is on that checkout funnel. And, uh, you know, for an individual site, like obviously, you know, you can use the analytics to kind of look at behavior and see where the mobile gap is most acute. Like, is product discovery similar on mobile and desktop? And we just have a worse checkout funnel degradation, or you know, you you can use analytics to kind of zero in for a specific client. But if I don't know anything, I'm going to start with that checkout funnel. That there usually is a lot of friction in that checkout funnel. A really simple principle. That, that has held very true for me. I'm always hesitant to talk about best practices because the reality is, like, I, I sort of don't believe in them. Like, you know, what works for mm-hmm. one client tends to not work for another client. And so I, I always like to caveat when I speak in generalizations, but I'll tell you two generalizations that have almost always been true for me on mobile um, op- optimizations. Faster pages perform better. And so, right. you know, uh, for sure, attacking page speed, which is almost always a, a problem on mobile, um, is a a significant opportunity. And, and these days, frankly, there's a lot of automated solutions that can kind of uh, get you started on your path to, to page speed optimization that are cheap and mm-hmm. easy. And then uh, another near universal axiom is 
the fewer form, uh, fields I ask a customer to fill out uh, on their, their checkout journey, the higher the conversion rate, right? And right. so, you know, I, I did a study. This is it's a little old now, so hopefully the world's been improved slightly. But on average, across my client base, you had to fill out 23 fields to, to check out, to purchase something from a, a physical good from an e-commerce site. Yeah, you really have to be motivated to do that, right? Exactly. And I, you know, when I talk about this, I always like to draw the mental pictures of the the form you probably filled out when you, you know, started with a new doctor or the form you filled out when you got in a car accident and you're hoping the insurance will pay for it. Like there's not a favorable association with filling out these, <laughs> these long forms. Mm -hmm. You know, we really sort of thought about it and said like, what's the most streamlined possible path you could have for most use cases. We, we get it down to about five fields. And so you go, man, you know, you're asking someone to fill out 23 fields of information. And if you can reduce that to five or seven or eight fields, you you've reduced a lot of friction from the checkout and almost universally that that uh, improves the mobile conversion rate. Yeah, and uh, totally right. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm on the same page with you, uh, but I'm also on the same page that uh, I think it's dangerous to talk about best practices, although these are well what people would call best practices. I I, I tend to call them common practices or prototypical principles, even uh, like yeah, because, I like that. The, yeah, because the, the term best. I mean, it has is it? I mean, it, it has such a high expectations, uh, and in the end, um, I, what we've seen a lot is what works for one side doesn't necessarily work for another side. We've ran A/B tests, exactly the same A/B test on on uh, several e-commerce sites, and with different results. And sometimes it wins, sometimes it loses, sometimes it's inconclusive. And uh, even stuff that is so-called best practice, um, and that's why I prefer to speak about common practices or prototypical principles but you are right uh, stuff like speed and reducing friction uh, you can't go uh, wrong with that if you have an e-commerce site and you you're considering an, an app would you recommend that is that for everyone or just a certain segment of of uh, e-commerce stores yeah so i generally am pretty negative on native apps for retailers and the the reason i say that is like there, there there's a, a very consistent axiom apps tend to convert much better than than native mobile websites so you mm -hmm. know i just talked about the mobile gap problem and you go yeah but jason my mobile app has a similar conversion rate or maybe even better than my desktop apps are the answer like the two the double-headed uh, problem there is number one correlation and causation are difficult to discern mm -hmm. right so you right. Know, your app users tend to be your your most loyal, engaged users, and you know, you would certainly hope that they would have a higher conversion rate than, you know, uh, cold, unfamiliar customers that are coming to your site for the first time. But the the bigger issue is that apps have incredibly poor reach. You know, frequently I walk into a client, they already have an app, and they're bragging about their download metrics, which yeah. is you know, sort of akin to akin to telling me in 2019 about your Facebook likes. Not a very relevant or important metric. I'm much more interested in your active monthly or, act, or active weekly users. And in most cases, that's an embarrassingly low number for retailers. Like yeah. there's a handful of retailers that have very good reach with their mobile apps and man, they should knock themselves out and, and you know, continue to invest in those. But most retailers have spent more, you know, a ton of money on this native mobile app. It has a very small active user base. Like part of the reason is, you know, I joke, you know, my mom and my hypothesis is no one else's mom know their iTunes passwords, right? So, you yeah. know, you, you, you need a password in order to, to download that app. If, if you go to an Apple store anywhere in the world, 
and uh, stand at the Genius Bar, what you're going to see is a long line of people waiting to recover their iTunes password. Like none of those people <laughs> could download your app. Uh-huh. Um, and then once they download it, the mortality rate is overwhelming. Like something like 95% of people abandon that app after three months. And so the mm-hmm. amount of apps customers religiously use is super small. It tends to all be apps made by Facebook and, and uh, Google. So there's very little room for the rest of us. And so it just, uh, and of course, apps don't tend you know, to be indexed in major search engines. Mm-hmm. So they don't have a lot of organic traffic. So for all those reasons, the app can be a very good loyalty play for your most loyal customer if the metrics support that there's an ROI there. But it's yeah. it's not a good tool for reach. It's not a good general solution for conversion rate. And I, I mentioned earlier in the show, there's sort of a a newer architecture for building a native mobile website. It's unfortunate. Yeah, that was going to be my uh, next question. Yeah, the PWA, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. PWAs or progressive web apps. I hate the name because when I say that name to anyone that's not familiar with the technology, which today is still the majority of, of mm-hmm. users, they assume it's an app and they assume it's a replacement for that that native app. And while yeah. that it potentially can be, and that is a small part of its value add, like what it really is, is a better, more modern framework for building a native mobile website, right? And so it's a, mm-hmm. a website that uh, likely has much better page performance. It, it, uh, it, it likely has a, a lot of attributes more in common with the native app, but it's a mobile website that can be well indexed by Google and Badao and can, uh, you know, sort of find new customers and has all the good attributes of a native mobile website. And then on top of that, you can save it to your desktop and use it as a, an app, if you like. And we've, we've mm-hmm. now seen some very big retailers in the U.S. Starbucks has a native mobile website and they have a native app and the app is hugely used. But as Starbucks is, has expanded geographically, when they moved into China, they didn't bother building a native app for China they just deployed a progressive web app. And so that, you know, that one asset serves both the, the native mobile users and the, the frequent users that want to save it to their desktop. And it, it works quite well for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as, a, as an end user, I, I think they're great. I mean, they're super fast. It's, it's, it's just fun to use them. Uh, you, you immediately notice the difference with a, with a regular uh, mobile site. So uh, definitely yeah. I think it's... Uh, me personally, I can't predict the future, of course, but I think they're going to be, break, break through uh, in, the, in the following years, probably. You as well? Yeah, as well? I'm, I'm generally very, very um, bullish on them. I would say you haven't heard a ton about them because until not too long ago, uh, there, were, there was a lot of browser support issues with them. So they were mm-hmm. imperfectly supported. You know, as of uh, the latest uh, Safari browser, like now, most of the major platforms su- support the overwhelming majority of the feature set. So there's still some some kind of minor um, feature parity issues around the edges, but but the core feature set of a PWA now works across all the popular mobile browsers. Um, so that was a big threshold that we just got over, and it still is a complicated, more difficult thing to build. So it, mm-hmm. it requires more of the level of effort of an app than it does a mobile website. And so it's, it's frankly understandable that a lot of people that felt like their website was difficult to build don't want to sign up to tackle this more complicated implementation. But, you know, the tools continue to get better. The, the libraries and whatnot continue to get better. So it's going to continue to get easier to build, build these progressive web apps. And, you know, also in my world, most retailers just made a big investment in what they would call, and this is another term that, that's somewhat ambiguous, a responsive website. And yeah. they, they thought they were going to uh, depreciate that investment over, over a large number of years. And so 
when I roll in a year or two after they built that site and say, hey, you ought to throw it away and build a progressive web app, that doesn't always immediately get the best reception. No, I can imagine. It, it's just going to be a matter of time. It's, it's yeah. going to be, uh, it's going to get easier and cheaper to build uh, to build them, I guess. And, uh, and 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 people will get more familiar with it. Probably Google will start favoring them as well uh, in indexing, and that that's also going to trigger uh, retailers probably to well to start looking into it. Well, at least that's my okay. my guess here. No, I, um, I didn't agree. Yeah. So, what do you think about AMP? I mean, I sometimes get that question from clients, and and I don't I, I don't think it's a great idea for e-commerce. And I always say like, don't do it. Maybe for your blog pages, but especially not for the store pages. But what's your take on on AMP? Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, there there are very convoluted implementations where you know for certain aspects of the e-commerce experience, you you can in fact leverage AMP, and you can get a performance benefit from that. But it's almost always the case that there's an alternative path to that same performance benefit that's less awkward. I mean, AMP just just really wasn't designed for e-commerce. It was designed for static mm-hmm. pages. In uh, most most good, good implementations of e-commerce, there's some personalization on every single page, right? And so mm-hmm. the two just uh, don't, don't um, overlap all that much. It, it can be done, but like usually I can uh, find a... a better way to deploy those resources for a bigger bank yeah yeah absolutely but funnily enough that's when uh clients start looking into um increasing the speed of their mobile site they end up well at some point with amp and they miss out on pwa it's like that's usually the first question i get is like should i do amp and i'm like no no stay away from that but you could look into PWA and then they're like more hesitant. So uh, that's yeah. probably because of the price tag as well. But uh, yeah, to be honest, yeah. there's um, like, so obviously, you know, there's a bunch of sort of native uh, things you can do around improving mobile performance. But if you're not prepared to invest in those things, if you're not prepared to crack into the code um, and, you know, do some some sprints around performance optimization, there are now a bunch of, I'll call them proxy solutions that sit mm-hmm. between your native server and the customer, sort of a, a, C, a CDN with page optimization capabilities. Sometimes these companies call themselves front-end optimization services. And yeah. on an automated basis, they can actually do quite a good job. So like, would my preferred solution be that you build an inefficient website and then fix it with some proxy in front of it? No. No, of course um, not. <laughs> but, but if you've already built something and you don't have a lot of resources, but you know that speed is an issue, or you yeah. even want to sort of do a split path test to prove that speed is an issue, you know, these, these proxy services work surprisingly well. And I, I have to remind people when I say that to someone, they're like, oh, I already have a CDN and I have a famous CDN that everyone uses. So that must mm-hmm. be. And the a sort of evil unspoken fact in our industry, CDNs make money by delivering bits of information. Mm-hmm. And so the more bits they deliver, the more money they make. Yeah. And so they actually have a financial disincentive to deliver less bits. But most I never thought about it like that. That's yeah, that's interesting. So it goes yeah. against their business. But, so, but most, you know, page speed optimization optimize the amount of bits they send, right? And yeah, so yeah. well well, all CDNs, you know, do have features to try to help with page performance. They they don't tend to be comprehensive, and they don't tend to have a financial incentive to be comprehensive. So be a bit careful there. Yeah. So, is there any any of those front end optimization optimization uh, services you would recommend? 
Uh, yeah. So I was afraid you were going to say that. Um, uh, uh, there, there's a host of them. I may be mispronouncing this, but there's a popular one called the uh, Yolada. Okay. And they actually, they do some cool thought leadership. They just published a study I really like where they, uh, they evaluated all the plugins on the top 1500 e-commerce sites and they sort of report on how well each of those plugins performed and, you know, how common those those plugins were across, you know, various kinds of e-commerce sites, mm-hmm. um, which is super interesting to me because I like to joke in, uh, I have some very industry specific jokes, but in the page performance industry, I like to joke that it's the biggest lie in e-commerce that, oh, we're just one little tag and we have no effect on your site performance because most oftentimes a lot of performance has to do with this amalgamation of third-party tags you have on your site. So Yolata is an interesting one. Like there are sort of next generation CDNs that have front-end performance optimization options. Usually you have to pay extra or turn them on, but so certainly Cloudflare has some interesting options. Fastly uh, is a newer, you know, modern CDN with some great front-end performance optimization. So I'd probably start with some of those. Yeah, okay. What do you think is 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 ahead in the future for e-commerce? What kind of trends and evolutions do you expect in the in the coming year or years? So we already talked about PWA. Any anything else you expect to become bigger and bigger? Yeah. Well, so for different categories of e-commerce, my answer would probably be slightly different. But like one interesting thing, we talk about e-commerce constantly. Like you know, you and I live and breathe it. Like it's important to remember that depending on how you count. Like it's still in the sort of 10 to 15% penetration, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not one of these people that believe e-commerce is ever going to be the majority of all transactions, but I, mm-hmm. I'm quite confident it's going to be much bigger than 15%. So I like to remind people we're still, uh, and I apologize for the baseball reference, but we're still in the first couple of innings of this game. And, you know, one of the categories that we spend the most money on and that we make the most purchases in is grocery. And that's a category uh, that has had very little traditional um, penetration with e-commerce. And so I sort of feel like we're right now in the cusp where shopping behaviors are changing. You know, home delivery is somewhat problematic and the unit economics are really complicated. But uh, curbside pickup or click and collect makes a ton of sense for grocery. And I, I've, I've literally like interviewed thousands of shoppers that call it a life-changing experience. So mm-hmm. uh, to me, that's a big change when people start... Um, uh, selecting their groceries from a manicured shopping list as opposed to you know going to the, the store. It has all kinds of implications in how we sell impulse purchases and how we expose customers to new products and new brands. So that's a big deal. And then uh, in a lot of these categories, in particular in grocery, a huge disruption is today we have to sort of uh, explicitly order everything we need. Um, and mm-hmm. we go through a lot of friction to do that. Uh, increasingly, uh, we're going to have better ways to implicitly understand what goods you need and just have those goods arrive when you need them. So yeah. that could be machine learning, looking at your past purchases and predictive shipping. It could be the, you know, the the simple webcam in your kitchen that, you know, is now noticing the items you throw away and use and predictively ordering. It could be the coffee machine that's an Internet of Things device and proactively ordering you know, coffee and soap for your dishwasher and those kinds of things. But like on the aggregate, I feel like there's going to be a big shift in e-commerce from what I call explicit to uh, ordering to implicit ordering. And that that has a lot of ramifications in terms of, you know, who the winners and losers are going to be and, and who's best suited for that future. Yeah, that's interesting. Never thought about it like uh, that way. Uh, so basically, you're never going to run out of toilet paper on the I think that's going to be one of the easiest problems uh, and, and most beneficial to mankind 
Yeah. Uh, we saw him in e-commerce. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, this is, this is a uh, big great, but maybe one last question um, because we're running out of time. But um, so you have your own uh, podcast, Jason Scott show uh, for people who don't know your podcast yet. Definitely check it out. Which episode is one of your favorite episodes? And I, th- I know that's a, that's a very different, a difficult question. I would have a hard time answering that one myself. So yes, yes, I, I love all my babies. Yeah, so, and, so do I. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, and we do have quite a few episodes at this point. We're coming up on our two hundredth episode, so we're we've published about one hundred and ninety one. I want to say, but yeah. there's like frankly five more in the can, including the two hundredth episode. Have already been recorded, uh, and the most recent ones are ones I tend to enjoy. So you know, if you uh, I, I hesitate to tell anyone to wait, but make sure you're on the lookout in November for our, our 200th episode. We we made it. Uh, we wanted to make it special, and we got a special guest. I thought it was a, a really good show, so I can't wait for that to go live. Most of the shows I do with a co-host who's much smarter than me, uh, Scott Wingo, and and uh, the two of us have a lot of fun together and, and uh, sort of make fun of each other. But obviously, my favorite shows are the small handful of shows I did without Scott, because um, <laughs> I get to get more more words in edgewise. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of teasing, but that it, it sort of worked out that uh, we got to interview some interesting sort of entrepreneurial founders. And so, you know, uh, uh, on shows that, that uh, unfortunately Scott wasn't able to make. So like the founder of ThreadUp was an interview I did uh, that I really liked. Like some of these startups that uh, where the, where it's sort of the, the, the founding CEO are really interesting to me because uh, this is a CEO that had to solve really all the business problems in his business. And they tend mm-hmm. to be you know, really well versed in all the aspects of their business as opposed to sort of just a strategic leader. And so, you know, uh, I talked to one of the founders of a, of a shark tank company called um, bottle keeper. That's super interesting. And, and uh, the founders of um, Tommy John and um, uh, Bomba socks. And so some of the, Founder CEOs from some of these digitally native brands are, uh, you know, ended up being some of my favorite conversations because of how how smart and broad the the CEO was, and therefore the conversation. Awesome! So uh, our listeners uh, who want to check it out, they can start with uh, Treda Bottle Keeper and the like. So that's uh, perfect. Hey, uh, Jason, this has been absolutely great, and, and we could probably go on for hours uh, talking about e-commerce. But uh, yeah, as I said, we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that people uh, know how they can find you, learn more about you. Yeah, what's the best place for uh, people to connect with you? Yeah, so I tend to hang out on all the digital platforms. Uh, my 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 handle is usually Retail Geek, so you can uh, you know catch me on Twitter at at Retail Geek or you know LinkedIn or or you know sort of uh, you could probably still find me on MySpace if you need to. <laughs> does that still exist? Well, no, I don't. I, don't, I, I think it does, <laughs> but I, I don't think you could find me. <laughs> okay, um, cool. But aim aim or, or ICQ if you want to get you know old school, you could probably find me there still. Yeah, or an old school phone or something IRC, like that. yeah. Oh, yeah, I do have one of those phones. I think it's even an app in my in my mobile device here I could use. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Jason. This has been really great and fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, great talking to you. Thanks very much for inviting me. The E-Commerce Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Dexter.Agency. We help e-commerce business owners scientifically increase revenue without needing more traffic. Ready to discover a more reliable way to increase conversion and, more importantly, revenue? Register for our free training, The 5 Transformations That Double E-Commerce Profits, at dexter.agency webinar.